This is Chris Riley here on Flex Coaches Inside the Game. We're talking with John Flaherty from the Yes Network. Um, catcher is a very unique position in sports. Uh, baseball is a very unique sport because it's the only sport that the defense puts the ball in play, and you're the only position player on the field that faces out. Everybody else is facing in towards home plate. Um, how hard of a is, is, of position is it to play? I don't think it's difficult at all. I, I Listen, I... I gravitated to that position when I was about eight years old because, to be quite honest, I needed the action. I needed, you know, to be in on on every play. Um, I also tell people that when I was a kid, I was so shy and introverted that putting that mask on was the most comfortable place in the world for me. Right? I felt like you know nobody could see me. I'm in my own little world. It just fit my personality. So I loved everything about the action. I loved everything about it's not about me. It's about the pitcher. I, I love trying to help guys. I, I love the fact that after games, there were only two people on the field who maybe knew what we did to get through a situation, right? Or maybe how I helped the pitcher in a spot that nobody in the crowd knows about, nobody on the bench, nobody on the field, but him and I know, right? That pitcher-catcher yeah. relationship, um, I, I think is so valuable. And, and that's really one of the parts that I missed about the game when I retired because, if you're going to be a good defensive catcher, it's selfless. It's not about you. It's about him. It's got to be about the guy out on the mound, um, the 12, 13 guys on your staff. So uh, I didn't think it was hard at all. I didn't think it was difficult at all. The physical part of it, it that you just got used to that. That was all part of the, the, the territory. So it was that me and you, me and the pitcher, I, I love that part of the position. It gives you a different perspective, though, to be looking out at the field. I mean, and the bench coach is probably giving you signals to move guys on the field. There's a lot of stuff going on that the average person doesn't understand. That, Like, are you looking at things saying, you know, last time this guy was up, he hit the ball over here. I'm going to have him move two steps to this direction. Are you are you looking to, to put defenses into play and doing kind of sh not shifts, but move guys a couple of spaces here and there in the field like a chess game so that you can kind of beat the guy at the plate? A little bit, but probably not as much as you would think, because once you get to that uh, professional big league level, the guys out on the field are thinking the same things that you just mentioned, right? What did this guy do the last time? Does he look like he's early or late with his swing? Um, so they're already moving themselves a little bit position-wise. Um, yeah, there were times you would make suggestions. And, you know, you mentioned the looking out at the field part. But I didn't know any different. It was the only position I had ever played, right? So for me, it was the most comfortable thing. I'm working with a pitcher. I see all my infielders and outfielders. Um, and I think a, a beautiful part of that is I don't see the crowd behind me. Yes. Right? I, I, I see the guys in front of me. I don't see what's behind me. I don't see cameras or any of that. So it really became just the focus of the pitcher and, and the, the position players out on the field. So there were a lot of interactions with um, – you, you know, you remember the most intelligent players you played with. Alex Rodriguez at third base, Derek Jeter at second base. Constant communication and looks with me. And, you know, even they would recommend pitches that they wanted you to call. Um, they were so into the game that there was a lot of uh, hand movement, eye, eye gestures that, you know, to, to get on the same page. So not, not as much position-wise, just that interaction with guys who were totally in at every pitch. What are things like a young catcher needs to really understand in baseball? What does he, he need to know that like he doesn't know at this point? Like he's in like double A. What does he need to know about a, something that like you would like to be able to say to them? 
you need to really understand this. This is really vital for your success that you were, you were told at one point in your career. Yeah, it's, it's probably not what they're going to want to hear because if they're in double-A trying to make it to triple-A or the big leagues, what is, it, what is it all about? It's about your performance, right? And I, and I remember those days, you know, your, your batting average, your home runs, your RBIs, your throwing percentage. It's all about what you're doing to get yourself to the next level. Once you get to the big leagues, I, I think the greatest advice I could give every catcher, and, and I mentioned this before, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the guy out on the mound doing well. It's about, you know, backing up Jorge Posada and playing once a week. And the focus was always win the game, have my pitcher throw well. And whatever I did, did it, it was a bonus, right? It, was, it, it became very simple. But it's not that simple when you're trying to graduate to the next level. But I think what every catcher can realize, and I think every front office I'm hoping realizes it. I, I know every manager I played for uh, realized it. If you're a guy behind the plate who can make that team better and make those pitchers better, there's a value there that analytics aren't going to be able to give you. And um, I remember when I made the Yankees, Joe Torre told me straight up, he said, you're going to make our pitchers better. And that's why you made this team. So uh, I think the greatest advice I can give for any young catcher, it's not about you, it's about them. It's about the, uh, the pitchers and the guys out on the field. Now, when you're getting ready to catch a game, do you sit down with your pitcher and, and like the pitching coach and, and maybe the manager and discuss the, the, the opposing lineup and say the last time they faced us yesterday or the last time we saw these guys two weeks ago, here's what all these guys did against us. I mean, is there a strategy that goes into preparing for like each batter that comes up? I mean, did Andy Pettit sit down with you and say, you know, here's what we, I think we should look at with this guy. And, you know, you're, you're, when you're, you're, you're in that box and you see that guy in that batter's box and maybe he shifts his feet so, a certain way or he does something in the box or he drops back or he does something with his shoulder. Are you looking for those <clears> tendencies <throat> to be able to relay to that pitcher to say, hey, he's doing this. Here's what's going on. I mean, are you in constant communication with him during the game like that? Yes to everything you just asked me. Yes, 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 all the way through. Uh, listen, you know, we back in my day, we would have a uh, pitcher-catcher meeting with the pitching coach before a series. And then on the day of the game, you would get together with the pitching coach and the pitcher and discuss what you wanted to do once you got the opposing lineup. Um, with all that being said, a lot of that goes out the window, right? I mean, you get into a game and, you know, your pitcher might not have his good stuff. Uh, you're noticing adjustments that that lineup is doing against your your guy. Um, and the greatest, probably, I don't know if it's advice, but I had a great time with Mike Mussina, right? And I was getting to, getting ready to catch Mike. Uh, Red Sox-Yankees, right? Big game, day game after a night game. And Mike's doing his crossword puzzle in the training room. And I have the lineup. And I said, hey, Moose, you want to talk about the lineup? And he looks at me and he said, no, not really. So I was like, all right, you know, you don't know me that well, Chris, but I'm a little stubborn Irish guy. Sometimes. Oh, I know. I, I have cousins yeah. like you. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. Say at times, you know, you're like your father. You know, I know. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So I'm like, you know what? All right, Moose. And I, I hightail it back to my locker. Like, you know, screw this guy. So he comes over and he's laughing. And he said, Flash, why would I want to talk about how I'm going to get their lineup out right now? He said, how about this? I'm going to go to the bullpen. I'm going to figure out what I have today. And he said, when we walk from the bullpen mount to the dugout, I'll tell you how I'm going to get their lineup out. 
I mean, I stood there like I had caught for 10 years in the big leagues and had never had a pitcher tell me that. I said, this is brilliant, right? So he goes to the mound, he warms up, he figures out what he has. And as we're walking from the bullpen at the old Yankee Stadium for the dugout, he said, Johnny Damon, I'm going to do this. Veritech, I'm going to do this. If he does this, I'm going to do this. And I was like, that is the difference between Mike Mussina, the Hall of Famer, and everybody else. Because he figured out right away what he had. And he figured out how, how what he had was going to get that lineup out. Now, the chess match is during the game, right? Are they on to me? What are they doing? Let, he would read swings better than anybody. And I felt like that's what I did pretty well, too. I would read swings. I would see what hitters were trying to do. Or like you said, moving up on the plate, backing up off of it. So it was never dictated in stone that this is how I'm going to do it. It constantly changed with Moose. And that was his brilliance, besides having great stuff. You talk about Joe Torrey. What separated Joe Torrey at his time with the Yankees? He had been a manager elsewhere, had moderate success, not great success. What was he able to do? How was he able to manage that lineup of the Yankees with all those stars? It's really hard to, you know, you got the egos, you got all that stuff. What separated him? What made him have that success with the Yankees? Well, you just mentioned it. That was the beauty of Joe Torre. wasn't uh, the nine innings out on the field. It was all of the hours that we spent in the clubhouse and all of the egos and all of the superstars. And, you know, I will say this. Joe was lucky in that the core guys that he had, Jeter, Bernie, Posada, Moe, Pettit, there are no egos there. Those guys were easy. It was the star players that were kind of brought in from the outside that Joe did a, just a brilliant job getting them all on the same page. And, you know, I tell a lot of Joe Torre stories, but the one thing that I can tell you is that I was the 25th guy on that team for three years. I was a backup catcher to Jorge Posada. Joe Torre made me feel like I was an important piece in order to win a championship. So, he was brilliant with the stars. He was brilliant with the bench players, making them feel like they were a big part of winning ball games. And at the end of the day, you would run through a wall for the guy, right? Yeah. Because of how he made you feel. And one of the greatest compliments I, I had ever had, and this again is um, 10, 11 years in my big league career, there was a time that Joe Torre put on a bunt play for me. I fouled it off. I looked down the third base coach and they took off the bunt play, but I was so ticked off that I didn't get it done that I laid it down the next time and got the job done. We ended up having a big inning. And when I come around the score, I go to the dugout and Joe says, you know, we took the bunt play off. You saw that. And I said, yeah, I did. I said, but I was just so ticked off at myself. I wanted to get it down the next time. And I said, is that okay? And he looked at me and he said, flash, I trust everything that you do out on the field. I mean, I was like, <laughs> wow like that word i trust you from a manager like joe tory uh, it had never been told to me that way before and all of a sudden i just i said all right like this is this is how it's supposed to feel to be a big leaguer on a championship team he made you feel that way he trusted you what i always was impressed with him is when things were going wrong and they would take a shot of him on camera and he'd just be sitting there in the dugout and there was no emotion, and you're like, yep. and everybody I know would say, he's got to be churning inside. This has got to be killing him. But he'd just sit there on the bench and just be like, and then he would get up 
and he'd take a pace to the water fountain, come back, and then he and then he'd go out to the talk to the pitcher, calm everybody down, and come back down and sit down. And it would be like, oh my god! I mean, did, did that kind of like permeate through everybody on the bench? You know, when you looked down, and you saw him. He didn't seem nervous. You know, okay, let's yes. go. Absolutely, and I. I also saw it and felt it from the opposing player's standpoint. I remember catching at Yankee Stadium with Tampa Bay, and we'd be beating the Yankees 4 nothing, and I'd get a peek at Joe in the dugout, and he's sitting there like he had it all fair. And I'm like, wait a second. What, what does he know that I don't know? Like, it's going our way. But you never saw the guy panic. And our personality of our teams, I think, permeated from the way Joe carried himself. Right? And Joe said this all the time. He said, you're the New York Yankees, you're champions, and you're going to go out there and show everybody that you're champions in, in such a chill way that when he carried himself into the dugout and the way he positioned himself, he would, he would carry himself like a champion. Now, obviously, that came with experience of winning and all of that, but we kind of followed that lead, like professionalism, we got this, you're not going to panic. Now, with all of that, Chris, the beauty of sitting next to him during games, he would let you have it, but he would let you have it when he knew there was no way the cameras were going to be on him. Uh, I'll never forget a time that Alex Rodriguez did something where he didn't run on the bases, didn't hustle, and when he came around the score, Joe Torre gave him that high little fist pump and underneath his breath, and you never would have been able to see this, don't ever let me see that happen again, as he's, you know, like, you know, one of those, right? See, everybody's like, he's congratulating Alex. But in reality, he's giving him a little shot. Don't ever let me see that happen again. Nobody, nobody would have known it except Alex, him, and whoever was standing right next to him. Beautiful. Mel Stoudemire was an amazing pitching coach. Um, how did he manage that staff? And how did he, and how did you fit into that mix with him as a catcher and, and Jorge also? How did he, how was he able to blend those personalities and keep every, because, Pitchers are not an everyday player. You know, yep. they, they play every third, fourth day or whatever. Relievers are in the mix, you know, mm -hmm. short relievers, long relievers. How is he able to keep everybody on the same page? Yeah, I think uh, the beauty of Mel and like any great catcher is you have to know the different personalities of your pitching staff and what makes them tick, what makes them go, what makes them get better. But I, and, and Mel knew that perfectly, but I, I think the other part of it is in today's game with analytics and numbers and percentages and all of this, Mel Stoudemire kept the art of pitching to a beautiful simplicity. It was so simple. Get ahead, right? Throw strikes. Don't walk anybody. Work fast. It was so, it was so simple. Do what you do, but do it quickly and get ahead in the count. So it, it was, he didn't worry about the running game. Pay attention to them, but your stuff is good enough that even if they steal second and steal third, you're fine, right? Yeah. It's just such a, a simple game plan and a confident game plan. Trust your stuff, get ahead, and work fast. It was, it was so simple, but at the end of the day, even with all these numbers that we're dealing with today, you get ahead in the count, you work fast, you pound the strike zone, you're going to be successful. Derek Jeter, okay, iconic Yankee, <clears throat> excuse me. Everybody wanted to be Jeter. You know, everyone admired him. What made him special that people really don't know about him? Like, what what was it about him? Like, he never seemed to get flustered. He always seemed to be that like, calming force on the field. It was kind of like an extension of Tory in a way. Um, but what was it about him as a person that made him so unique to the Yankees? I mean, look past analytics, look past the numbers. You know, I always talk about character 
and and per, and, and blending of personalities is so vital to the success of an organization. Any organization has to have that. But what made him unique? Well, a few things about Derek. First of all, playing against him, thought he was a good player, right? Playing with him, I know he's a great player by watching him for three years and what he did every day. Um, I tell people all the time, Derek Jeter was never the most talented player out on the field every night, but Derek Jeter believed in his mind he was the best player on the field every time he took the field. The confidence that he had in himself was incredible, right? And as athletes, that confidence comes and goes, right, with all of us, whether you're, you're hot at the plate, you're a confident hitter, you're struggling in a slump, your confidence takes. Derek's confidence was always here, no matter if he was 0 for 15. That was one of his beautiful gifts. And the other thing that I'll say, I was standing on the railing of the dugout for a postseason at bat, and I forget when it was, 03, 04, 05, and Derek took a terrible swing. I mean, was fooled completely. And he steps out of the box, and he makes eye contact with me, and he starts laughing, right? He starts laughing. Now, I'm a backup player, and I'm standing on the railing, and I'm, like, stressed, and I'm intense, and I'm into this. And when he stepped out, and he started laughing, and I thought to myself, that's why he's great. That's why. Because yeah. this at bat to him is no different than if we were in Tampa in March yep. in spring training. It's no different. It's me against the pitcher. I don't care if it's the seventh game of the World Series. It's the same thing. And when he stepped out and started laughing at himself, I thought to myself, I'm like, that's why this guy is Derek Jeter. His confidence is through the roof, and he doesn't change anything about the way he plays the game, whether it's a spring training game or a World Series game. And that's why his numbers all the way through were just so consistent. One of the awful things in baseball is um, you do get traded. You do get released. How hard is that? Is that a very difficult well, thing? It's a, it's, you're, it's a known part of sports. It's got, it could happen to you at any time. But – is it a shock when it happens to you the first time? So, Chris, uh, I'm very proud to say that I was never released at any time in my career. And uh, people might say, oh, okay, great, whatever, like you played in the big – no, I, I thought I was going to get released a lot of times, right? I'm, and I was playing so poorly that I'm like – I'm walking into a clubhouse thinking they're probably going to say, okay, John, today's the day that it's over for you. And I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that 18 years professionally – I was never told that. I was able to walk away on my own. Now, the, the trading part is, is different. For I was traded, I think, four times. Um, my first trade was from the Red Sox to the Tigers, and I was devastated, right? I mean, I came up through their system. Uh, my last name, Flaherty, in Boston. I told you how much my dad yeah. loved going to Fenway Park in Boston. Devastated, and I was loyal. I thought I was going to be a Red Sox my, my whole career. So it took me a good month to get over that one. The next trade was from Detroit to San Diego, and I went from a last-place team where I wasn't playing an awful lot to a first-place team where I was the everyday catcher and played the best baseball of my life. So, I mean, I couldn't wait to get out of Detroit and get to, to San Diego. And I think you start learning along the way. It's not that the other team doesn't want you. It's that the team you're going to wants you, right? Yeah. And that's how I started thinking about it. Like, okay, San Diego wants me. Let's go. And then I got traded to Tampa Bay or, you know, and they want me, you know, okay, great. So the, the, the trades were, were a little easier in the off season than they were during the season. But 
you, you get used to the business of baseball and, and you get used to going into a new clubhouse. And to tell you the truth, baseball players get along like that. I mean, it happens so quickly. It's like you get in with them. All right, here we go. We're, we're, you're part of the team now. Let's figure it out. And it was a pretty easy transition. You do have one piece of unique history in baseball lore. Um, 1996, you had a 27-game hitting streak when you were with the Tigers. Did it become pressure for you in that situation? <clears throat> were you going, oh, my God, you know, like after the 10th game, 11th game, you, you, you're getting hit every day. You know, in, in hockey, it's like guys will say, we, you know, we want to – a goal a game or something or in basketball guys averaging 30 points every game or in football guys are getting touchdowns all the time was it pressure for you getting that or was it just like i'm having a great time with this this is a lot of fun i'm, I'm getting a hit every the ball must look like a beach ball coming in at you you know there's a lot that goes into that hitting streak i, I got traded from detroit to san diego and started off 0 for 10 my first 10 at bats didn't hit a ball out of the infield and was feeling it a little bit and uh merv retman who was our hitting instructor he came up to me and said, hey, I've been watching for a few days and there's no movement in your hands, right? You're, you're a standstill hitter. And he said, I'd love to see you get some movement. So I tried in batting practice, felt pretty good. Didn't play that night, but got in late as a defensive replacement and actually hit a home run to tie the game up um, and thought, oh, wow, okay, we, you know, this felt pretty good. I saw the ball really well and just started thinking about that with a little rhythm in my hands. So, yeah, it just felt like what you were saying, that the ball slowed up a little bit. And I remember thinking this must be what Tony Gwynn or Ken Caminiti, these great players, how it must feel for them every day. So I was having a ball. I mean, I go on the sitting streak and I'm up to 10, 15. No big deal. This is great. Uh, we're winning games. And it hit me when Tony Gwynn came up to me. I got a hit in my 25th game. And he said, well, you just blew me out of the water. And I said, what? <laughs> And he said, yeah, my longest hitting streak was 25 games. And I, I remember thinking that this thing is going to come to an end. I mean, Tony <laughs> Gwynn, I'm, I now have a hitting streak longer than the great Tony Gwynn. And that's when I felt it and said, all right, this is a big deal. And it ended a few nights later when Al Leiter, a guy that I ended up working with and playing with, uh, threw a bunch of cutters into my hands and, uh, and went over that night. But it was, a, it was an amazing streak, uh, amazing time in my career. But I was more proud of the fact that they made a trade for me and I actually performed well at the beginning of that trade. It felt pretty good. What's it like to play for the Yankees? To put that uniform on, <laughs> to know the history. I mean, you played for two historic teams in the Red Sox and the Yankees. I mean, what's it like to play for those organizations? Is there more pressure? So I tell people, yeah, yeah, there's more pressure, but – uh, by the time I got to the Yankees, that's what I was looking for, the, the pressure and the expectations of winning a World Series. So I tell people all the time, if you can play in Tampa Bay when you have 8,000 people watching you and you find a way to get yourself ready for a big league game, when you go to Yankee Stadium and play in front of 56,000 Yankee fans, when you walk out on the field, that energy raises you to another level. So if you have the right attitude playing in New York and you embrace the pressure and the expectations, it's the greatest place to ever play baseball because those fans and that energy bring you up to another level. I felt like I finally made it to the major leagues after playing for four other different teams for 10 years. When did you know it was time to retire? Well, I retired in the spring of 2006, but I had been thinking about it for a few years and uh, when the Yankees and Brian Cashman said that they didn't want me anymore, I became a free agent, and I was pretty much like, okay, I'm done. And then the Boston Red Sox called, 
right? The team that I started with. And they wanted me to be able to catch Tim Wakefield, the knuckleball pitcher. And I thought to myself, you know what? My kids are in school, so they're not going to be able to be with me. But Boston is going to be close enough. And it was a winning organization and is where I started. So I thought, let's give this a shot. And I went to spring training the first day, had a great time. Uh, the second day, had a terrible round of batting practice. And instead of going to the cage and working on it, which is what I would have done my whole career, I went to the pool at the condo complex that I was staying at. I had a six-pack of Coors Light. And I called my wife at the time, and I said, I'm done. It's, I, I don't want to work at it anymore. And that was it. I, I walked off the field, and I talked to the media and, you know, said all of the right things. And the next day, I walked into Terry Francona's office and said, I don't want to work at this anymore. And you have too good of a team to have somebody who doesn't want to be here 100%. And I, the next thing I knew, I was eating, uh, eating breakfast at a Denny's and felt like the weight of the world was off of my shoulders. You know, I'd been doing it for so long that the, the mental part of it is probably a lot more than people realize. You have to be 100% invested, 100% committed. And if you're not, you're going to be exposed. And I was at a point where I said, you know what, it, it's time for me to go. I don't want to be embarrassed out on the field.